listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. It's so good to see you here this morning, and we are in Luke's Gospel, and we've been in, in Luke's Gospel for several months now, and we're coming up to a monumental shift in uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so I want to go back for just a second and recapture um, all that we've been through in just a few brief statements, and then... Um, work our way through the text that's before us this morning. There are a couple of things you can look at when you consider the gospel of Luke and break it down into four sections. The first thing that we can see is that um, that it is an apologetic or it is uh, a writing by this guy named Luke. We see it in, in the first four verses to a guy named Theophilus. And Luke wants to convince Theophilus of the credibility of Christianity. And so that's what the book Luke and Acts are sort of written about to Theophilus to say Christianity is legitimate. Let me tell you why it is legitimate. And if you read through, again, the opening passage there in verses 1 to 4, Luke basically says, as an historian, that I have uh, collected data, that I have done observation, that I have talked to eyewitnesses, and that I have even myself, in talking to these eyewitnesses, gathered their testimony. Uh, tons of people, and I myself have experienced these very things that I'm writing to you about, O Theophilus. And he says at the end of verse 4, I I want you to be certain. So the gospel of Luke is written to us so that we can have this certainty of the credibility of Christianity, but then he moves into the credibility of Jesus Christ. And as he moves into the credibility of Jesus Christ, he begins to look at um, the 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 claims of Christ. What does Christ say about himself? What do other people say? about Christ. We know two things about Jesus. Number one, he is the savior of the world, but he is also the son of God. And that is pointed out. And so we see this certainty. We also see this biographical information of Jesus. And that's what any historical or what any good historian would do. And Luke, in, unique to his writings, if you want to understand an outline of the gospel of Luke, he does it geographically. Every time there is a change in geographical location, there is a change in the emphasis of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And when we come to chapter four and verse number 14, all the way to uh, chapter nine and verse 50, we see the ministry of Jesus Christ in Galilee. And and so Jesus is establishing the fact that he is the Messiah in 414 to 950 by performing miracles, by doing all sorts of things that only Messiah would do, and he's modeling that before uh, his followers. But then when we come, again, geographical shift to chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is now leaving Galilee. He's headed to Jerusalem. Chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 9, verse 50, it covers 18 months. 
Chapter 1, chapter 1, 1 to chapter 4, verse 13 covers 30 years. Chapter 4, 14 to chapter 9, verse 50 covers 18 months where Jesus is in Galilee. And then when you come to chapter 9, verse 51, and you go to chapter 19 and verse 27, we've covered another 18 months, and that's Jesus leaving Galilee and going to Jerusalem so that he can go to the cross and give up his life there for my sin and for your sin so that we then, by his grace, can have access into his kingdom. It's interesting, as we look at the Gospel of Luke, the word kingdom is mentioned 38 times. And up to this point in our text, it's been mentioned 39 times. And Jesus is going to begin to talk about the kingdom again. And I want to go back preceding the passage that Luke read and begin looking, uh, if you will, at chapter 19 and verse number 11 this morning. And I want to catch us up to date before we move on to the next passage, um, if I can have your permission to do that for just a few minutes. This morning, but chapter 19 and verse 11 to chapter 19, verse 27, because before Jesus actually gets into Jerusalem and there is this uh, Palm Sunday and they're having this great celebration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus stops after he said that he has come in 1910 to seek and to save that which was lost and dealing with Zacchaeus. Now he's moving into correcting bad theology on the part of of his disciples. And we need to hear um, this text in its great clarity this morning before we move on to our next passage. So if you look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Jesus is talking about the kingdom. That's all that he's been t talking about. Again, it's been mentioned 29 times up to this point. He's giving them a, a, a kingdom, a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 51, all the way up to this point. He's about to go into Jerusalem. He was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So here are the disciples. They're, they're confused and they need to be corrected. They're confused because they think that, and here's something we need to understand. They think that God does things the same way we do things. In fact, they think God needs them. They think that if God's going to come and set up a kingdom, it's going to look like the same kingdom that Caesar rules over. And if God's kingdom is a powerful kingdom, it's going to have the same kind of power that Caesar's kingdom has. It's going to be the, the, the power of uh, military. It's going to be the power of government. It's going to be the power of great rulers. It's going to be the, the, the power that comes in and can destroy. But Jesus comes in, like we said last week, with this kingdom of weakness, of powerlessness. He is a king who goes to a cross and dies for those who are following him. And so the disciples are thinking, okay, we're fixing to go to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, the kingdom's going to be established. It's all going to be over. Israel is going to rise to prominence. God is going to get all of his glory, and everything is going to be set right that has been wrong for so long. And Rome is going to be overthrown. Jesus is stopping to say, time out. That is not what is going to happen. They've been traveling for 18 months hearing about the kingdom, ready to get to Jerusalem, ready to have the kingdom established. And Jesus says that's not the way it's going to happen because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. It's not going to appear immediately. Now, what we're going to move into in this parable is Jesus is going back and catching some historical context that everybody that is listening to him would have been familiar with. You see, back in, in four um, I, I, it was back with, with Herod 
the Great. Um, Herod the Great uh, died early in the life of Jesus. So we're looking at about 30 years ago, Herod the Great died. Herod the Great had a son named Archelaus. Archelaus would have been the heir apparent to the throne. But what Archelaus had to do, as opposed to just coming and assuming the throne of Judea in the place of his father, Herod, Archelaus ended up having to go to where the, the, the government, the seat of the power of the universe or of the world existed at that time, which was Rome and a guy named Caesar. So Archelaus had to leave Judea, had to go to Rome had to submit himself to Caesar, and Caesar then had to give Archelaus the right to reign and to rule. As we read the passage, it's going to be clear. But what happened is before, Arche before Herod died and before Archelaus was sent to Rome, there was an uprising in Judea at the temple, and Archelaus recklessly had 3,000 Jews killed. So he had a bad reputation. Consequently, by the time Archelaus got to Rome to have Caesar say, you can rule and reign in Judea, there was already, first of all, family members that were saying, we should be the king, not Archelaus. We should rule and reign, not Archelaus. But secondly, there was a contingent of Jews who found their way to have a hearing with Caesar to, to say to him, Archelaus shouldn't rule. This guy is reckless. He is a terrible ruler. As history would have it, Archelaus ended up being given the right to rule and reign in Judea. And when Archelaus went back to Judea to rule and reign, he destroyed everyone that opposed him. Listen to this parable that Jesus shares. Verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants who he had given the money to to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and you reap where you do not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then do you not put my money? did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming... I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even that he has shall be taken away. But as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So Jesus shares this parable, but he relates it to his kingdom. They think that Jesus is going to establish the kingdom when he gets to Jerusalem. 
and the Israel is going to take over and they're going to defeat all their enemies. Jesus says, no, I'm going to get to Jerusalem. Some things are going to happen in Jerusalem. I'm going to go away, but when I go away, I'm going to leave you with the currency of the kingdom that you're going to be able to transact kingdom business with, and then I am coming back in all of my glory. And you are going to be held accountable for how business was transacted with with my resources in my kingdom while I was gone. So what do we see in the text this morning? First of all, we see the confusion and correction regarding the kingdom. I've already mentioned the confusion in verse number 11. We come to the correction in verse number 12. And, and here is what Jesus is saying, and just let me, let me go over it briefly. As soon as we get to Jerusalem, they are thinking that Jesus will assume um, the throne. Israel will be set free. Rome will be defeated. In this parable, Jesus is the nobleman. Jesus is the nobleman. The, the, the far country is this, that, that, that after these events of 1928, chapter 19 and verse 28, to chapter 24 and verse 53, Jesus is going to heaven. When he says to receive a kingdom, the word receive there means that he's going to obtain a kingdom. He's going to be granted the right to reign. That's what Archelaus did. Jesus is leaving and will be, will be coming back and there will be no doubt when we see him. When, listen to me. There will be no doubt when Jesus comes back in anybody's mind that Jesus Christ has the right to rule and reign every single facet and person on this planet. When we see him, we will know that he is nothing like we have ever seen, and we will know that he is in charge. And so Jesus is going to heaven to obtain a kingdom, to be granted the right to reign, and then he is coming back. But here's, in the meantime, here's what he's saying. So I am here, I am going to Jerusalem to die, and through dying I will win a great victory, and when that victory is accomplished, I'm going to the one true God who will officially grant me the right to rule and reign. And when I return, there will be no doubt about who is in charge. So this is the parable that he's sharing with them. The, the, the contrast is, is what is right now and what is going to be. And we need to understand what is right now. We can see in verses 31 to 34 of chapter 18... This is the right now. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. This was written by the prophets. It's going to be accomplished. Verse 32, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus is going to be killed. Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Jesus is going, just going to ascend and be seated at the right hand of the Father. In the meantime, we're going to be left here as faithful servants. But Jesus is coming back. So we see this contrast in verses 31 to 34. This is how Jesus is operating now. But there's going to be a contrast to that when he comes back. We see it clearly in Philippians chapter 2. And it's a very popular and you can identify with the text. You've heard it before, but listen to this. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. It, it essentially says in verse 7 that Jesus made himself of no reputation. 
The kingdom of heaven here on earth does not need people of reputation. The kingdom of heaven here on earth does not need the power that we think other institutions need to operate. It is is a completely different kingdom. And then being found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Jesus is talking about. We look now at Jesus hanging on the cross. We look now at, a, at the true church that is, is really struggling, is really struggling and will always be struggling. And we look to the future when Jesus come, is coming back and it's, it's going to be completely different. And I just want to take a second to go over to Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to see what Jesus is going to look like when he comes back. He's not going to look like what we just read. He's not going to come humbling himself as a servant, making himself of no reputation, because the first time he came, he came to die in our place for our sins so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be welcomed into the kingdom by virtue of the sacrifice of his perfect life for your sin and my sin. But when he he comes back, Revelation chapter um, 1 makes it clear um, to him who loves us, the second part of verse 5, has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. You may not think there's much to the church now, and you may not think there's much to Jesus in Luke's account and him going and dying, but Jesus is coming back. This is what he's telling us in this parable. And the world is going to be shocked when they see Jesus coming back in all of his glory. You can go over to chapter 1 and verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was was like the sun shining. And here was John's response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. If you trust him, you don't have to fear death. I I, I sat yesterday with a dear friend in hospice who is... Um, according to the doctors and according to her families, is certain to die. And we were not mourning or grieving because we know that she knows the one who has the key to death and Hades, and his name's Jesus Christ. He's coming back. Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse and some of you are like, this sounds like a bunch of fairy tale stuff. Well, what games are you playing on your computer? You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, I mean, some some I mean, you some of some folks are just they're addicted. They're because this isn't altered. They can't have a conversation because they're involved in this altered form of reality that's completely dominated their personality and taken over their mind, right? Or what movies have you been to lately? How about the new Jurassic Park movie? I I can't stand to watch the commercials. Uh, but that, that, that will capture so many. Now, I'm not saying you're unspiritual if you watch that. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch that. I'm just saying I can't watch it. It's so far outside the realm of reality. But we're so captured by horror movies. We're so captured by, by all of these uh, uh, characters, these superhero characters. It, it dominates everything that we look at. But all of a sudden now, I'm talking about Jesus coming back, and this becomes far-fetched, and it's not. This is real. This is true. And, and, and so, so listen, and I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. He's riding this, uh, this horse, this charger that a great king would ride. And one sitting on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And, the, and in the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, linen white and pure were, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, I'm telling you that we look at what has happened and we look at the state of the church and it's not really impressive and when the church has tried to impress our culture, it is utterly failed because we're operating with a completely different currency than the world operates with. We're operating out of a completely different power than the world operates out of. But Jesus is going to come back one day, and we are going to be shocked, and we are going to be amazed. And I don't know about you, but I long for his return because there are, there are no good kings in this world, and there are no good kingdoms in this world. And, and it's all coming to a boiling point probably sooner rather than later. And I don't know about you, but as I get discouraged and as I watch the news and as I check my news feed every morning, as I'm intricately concerned about what's going on in the financial markets and intricately concerned about what's going on morally as our leaders make laws that trickle down, and as I'm intricately concerned about the character of those who lead us as a nation, and as I'm intricately concerned about what's happening on the world history scene, I have great hope in the fact that there is a great king who is coming, and he's going to establish a great kingdom, and there is nothing in this world that can compare to what we're looking for. Jesus is coming back. And so Jesus corrects their confusion in verses 11 and 12. But then when we come to verse 13 through verse number 19, Jesus calls and commands faithful servants. So there is the calling and command to be faithful servants. Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm going to leave. I'm going to be gone for a while and I'm going to return. Here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I want you to do until I get back. I am going, listen, to every believer, listen to me. You say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. To every believer, Jesus Christ has supernaturally given to you the currency of his kingdom. Do you understand that? 
It's not traded on the stock market. The world will not recognize it or value it. In fact, the world doesn't want to pay anything for it. It is a power that is greater than anything that this world has to offer. Jesus is giving them these these minas. What is he doing? He gave them these minas and he said, go and do the business of the kingdom. He's giving them the currency of the kingdom so that the work of the king can carry on through his servants until he comes back. So whatever he is giving them, he is giving them the ability and whatever he is giving them to transact the business of the kingdom with the currency of the kingdom to do the work or get the results that should be occurring in the kingdom of God. That ought to grab our attention this morning. Uh, This mina is the value or the power or the resources necessary to engage in kingdom commerce. The, the, The church has a black eye in the world, and it does. The church has a bad reputation in the world. Because we are not entering into the world and transacting kingdom business with the power of the kingdom. But we say, you know what? If we want to be really big in the world and make an impact in the kingdom, we need bigger buildings. Jesus would say, my kingdom is not a kingdom of brick and mortar, and I'm not impressed at all with any structure that you could build and put my name on it. But the world says, whoa, wow, that is amazing. That is a magnificent edifice, and it appeals to our flesh. And on so many fronts, we're going we're we're to put on a great program. If people go to concerts, why don't we have a great concert here? Why don't we have a great program here? Why don't we have great speakers here? Why don't we have people that write books here? Why don't we have great personalities here? Why don't we have just really attractive preachers here? You failed there, South Point. I've got a mirror. Somebody said amen. Thank you. God bless you. You have to double your tithe this week now. <laughs> we look at our money and we say, our money's okay. We've got plenty of money in the bank. God must be blessing. That's not the currency of the kingdom. So, so Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. I'm coming back and you don't know when. But he gathers his servants. He says, I'm going to give you the currency of the kingdom. And now I want you to go and do the business of the kingdom with the currency of the kingdom that I am giving to you. I want you, my designated servants. I want you, my representatives. I want you, my ambassadors. I want you, my family. I want you, my body. I want you, my children. I want you to actively transact kingdom business until I return. So what are these minas? What are these? What are these denominations? What is this currency? I would suggest several things to you. And I would say from the outset that we don't create the power of the kingdom. And that's good news. We don't have to create or generate the power of the kingdom. Jesus gives us, listen, Jesus gives us everything that we need to transact, gives us everything that we need to transact the business of the kingdom. We simply, as human beings who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, need to be the embodiment of it. In other words, we need to say, come and fill me and flow through me so that the business of his kingdom here on earth, until he comes back, can be conducted. What is the currency of the kingdom? I want to suggest several things to you that I believe Scripture tells us is the currency of the kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the currency of the kingdom. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel is that Jesus lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose victorious over an enemy that we cannot defeat. And if we will trust in the life that he lived and in the death that he died and the resurrection and his defeat of death, if we will put our faith in him, if we will surrender to him, he will give us life. That is the good news. The good news is you don't have to stay in your sin. The good news is you don't have to die in your sin. The good news is you don't have to be an enemy of God. The good news is that there is hope today, no matter what you're going through. That is the gospel. And here's what Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's not a personality. It's not a speaker. It's not an organization. It is the gospel. So he has given us the gospel I love Luke 4.18. The gospel is, is good news. And in and, and Luke chapter 4 and, and verse number 18, um, Jesus says this. He goes into the synagogue. He opens the scroll that's perhaps the reading for the day. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What is good news? What does good news do? He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's given us the gospel. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit who comes and takes up residence and lives in us. He's given us the body of Christ. He's given us the family of God. There is power in his body there is power in his gathered body. There is power in his going body. There is power in the body of Christ. He's given us the fruit of the Spirit. This fruit that flows out of us. This love, this joy, this, this peace, this long-suffering. He has given us this fruit. It is his fruit. We're not working to generate. We're just, we're just the embodiment of it. The Spirit comes in and the fruit flows out. He's given us the armor of God. He's given us the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, uh, uh, the, the belt of truth, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. He's given us everything that we need. He's given us the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. He's given us the shield of faith. He's given us praying with all prayer. We have been given these self-perpetuating resources. And we are the embodiment of these resources. We are the vessels of these resources. And we have been commanded with these resources that, that are in us as the servants of Jesus Christ to go into the world. We go into a world of bad news and bring good news we go into a world of darkness and we bring light. We go into a world of violence and we bring peace. We go into a world of brokenness and lives filled with pain and wounds and we bring healing. We go into a world of offense and sin and we bring forgiveness. We go into a world of hatred and we bring love. We go into a world of judgment and self-righteousness and we bring mercy and grace. We go into a world of shame and we bring acceptance. We go into a world of loneliness and we bring Family, that is what we should be doing until Jesus comes back. So we have been left here to be on mission. The body of Christ in perpetual motion through those who say they are part of Christ's kingdom. And where there is crisis and pain and sin and death and disease and violence and abuse and corruption, we rush in with the good news of the gospel. 
We are taking this good news into a world that does not see its value, that will mischaracterize it and even rebel against it. That's what the text is telling us. We're going into the world with the good news of a really great king and a really great kingdom. And there are going to be those that say, I don't want that king and I don't want that kingdom. And I don't want him ruling or reigning over me. The world is opposed. The world rebels against this king and his kingdom and his rule and his reign and his authority. The world is opposed to the business of the kingdom. It's not unlike Genesis 3. Satan comes and makes an offer to Adam and Eve. The day that you eat of this, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. What does that mean? To be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what that means? I'm going to be like God, and I'm going to decide what's good, and I'm going to decide what's evil. Wouldn't you love to have that relief? I mean, why do kids, they're like, I'm not listening to my, my, my parents. They're, they're, they're whacked out. I would use more. I can't, yeah, I can't use the terms I grew up with in the contemporary. That might make some parents mad. You say the S word. It's S-T. That's the S word. Okay, just to be clear. Why are kids that way toward their parents? Because they don't like the rules. They want to make their own rules. I'm going to break free. I'm going to, I ran away from home when I was 16. I didn't like the rules. I didn't want to get my hair cut. And I didn't like the way my dad told me to get my hair cut. And he's no longer with us or I wouldn't be speaking so boldly this morning. I don't want to live under anybody's rules, and I don't want to live. And so, so Satan comes and makes this offer. You're going to be like God. You can decide what's good and evil. You can decide what's right and wrong. Hey, you can live in such a way that your conscience will not bother you anymore. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if we never had to feel shame anymore, and we could just do it on our own by making up our own rules and saying, the thing that causes shame in me, instead of me feeling like it's wrong or me feeling like I'm not good enough, I'm always going to feel like that whatever I do is right, and I'm always going to feel like I'm good enough because I'm making the rules now. So when we look at this text, it's just a, 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 a... a remake, a rerun of Genesis 3. And we see the same thing in Romans 1. Romans 1, read it. I would encourage you to read Romans 1, 18 because, because men have rebelled the wrath of God, the, the um, a wrath of abandonment where God steps back and say, oh, you want, me, you want me out? You want me to just leave you all to yourselves? It's, isn't it interesting after 50 years of us saying, God, get out of our schools, and we've done that? You can't say Jesus. You can't. God, God forbid you pray. And all of a sudden now, when there is a tragedy, they're saying, where was God? Where was God? Oh, would you go look back in the closet where you store all of the things that you don't need and go to the deepest shelf? And, and it's, the, it's back there with the dust all over it. And that's where we put God a long time ago when we said, God, would you leave us alone? Would you leave us alone as a people? Where is God? If you say, God, leave us alone, God will step back. Read Romans 1. And God gave them up, and God gave them up, and God gave them up over and over again. Because we're like, hey, God, we don't want you in our life. 
We suppress the truth and ungodliness, and we're going to worship the we're going to worship the creature rather than the Creator. And things are completely turned upside down. That is what we're dealing with as we take the good news into this world. It's going to be rebelled against. It's going to be rejected. But we still have to we still have to take good news. We still have to go into the world with the currency of the kingdom of heaven. And confront darkness with the currency of the kingdom of heaven and offer good news to people in this world, no matter how they respond to us or reject us or persecute us. We can we can never stop. So so there is this this currency that we have that we are to be using. And I, I was listening to a podcast this week, um, and it was by a guy named Kirk Thompson. And I, I he's written three books and I've read all three of them. And Kirk Thompson was talking about um, a, a patient, a client, someone that he was dealing with. And, and he was talking about sexual abuse. You say, well, I, I don't think we should be talking about it, that in church. One in three women have been sexually abused. Right? And there was this lady named Tara. And Tara had been sexually abused by a leader in her church. And then after going through all of that and thinking that she's experienced healing from that, she and you say, well, what's, what's the big deal about that? First of all, it's massive sin. But number one, we're supposed to be taking care of people in church and not abusing them. So it's completely inconsistent with who we say we are and what we say we represent. Um, and and I, we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be that. We don't want to identify with that. But here she is. Her life has been just totally wrecked by a leader in the church in, in, through sexual abuse, which is so absolutely confusing to the brain, to the neurons, to the heart. There's so much that goes on in that kind of transaction. And it's not like you just turn it on and you turn it off. And then she married a guy and he had a, a pornography addiction, but he had gotten over his pornography addiction and everything is fine until he relapsed. And well, what do you marry a guy for? You marry a guy because you want to you be loved. Why do people get married? They don't get married because they want to be abused. They get married because they want to be loved. They want to be cared for. They want to be connected. And so here's this lady who's she's moved toward these people, hoping that they will love her and take care of her. And she finds on every turn that she is being literally sinned against. And Kurt Thompson said, and that's where the gospel shows up. And that's where the gospel shows up. That's where the gospel, that's where the spirit, that's where the fruit of the spirit, that's where all that Christ is as he fills us, as we are the embodiment of all of this currency that we have been given. We then move into this culture where there is all of this brokenness, all of this abuse, all of this sin, all of this corruption, all of this corrosion. We move into that as people of the kingdom. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's how we roll. We've been given this energy and power that is not our own, that is self-perpetuating. 
and there are people that are out here and they're literally dying on the inside. There are people in this room that are literally dying on the inside and they're not experiencing this currency of the kingdom that is ours at our disposal that has been given to us that we don't have to earn that Jesus just says, here it is, it's yours. It will reproduce on its own if you'll just do the business of the kingdom, engage in the business of the kingdom. That's who we are supposed to be. We see in the text, in, back in, in Luke 19, Jesus is delighting in the faithfulness of his people. He says, well done. He, he delights when we faithfully dispense kingdom resources to those around us. He delights when we offer him as life and him as hope and him as joy. When we plead with people to be reconciled to God, when we offer the kingdom to those around us, that is their only hope. Jesus delights in that. He also reminds us that our faithfulness will be met with difficulty and hostility and even rejection and hatred. But there is nothing that is ultimately worth more than living life in the currency of the kingdom. You say, well, what do I need to do with all of the currency I've got right now? I would just say wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I don't don't think you need to sell your house or get rid of your baseball card collection. I would say right now you need to start living out of the currency, the value that he has placed in you, and let that be the energy that, that, that flows out of you, and it's going to flow out of you in love, and it's going to flow out of you in relationships, and it's going to compel you to move toward other people with his energy and his strength and his power and his grace and his love and his healing and his hope and his forgiveness, and we go into the church and into the world Offering that everywhere we go. And when we see brokenness and we see corruption and we see sin and we see just these, these terrible messes that have been made, we need to understand that we have the solution because we have Jesus Christ. The final thing I want you to see in the text is the consequences of those who reject the king and the kingdom. And we've already read the text, so let me, let me just cover it briefly. Um, Contrary to how we function here in America, the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. So ain't nobody voting on Jesus. Right? You say, I don't want Jesus to rule and reign. That's what they're doing in the text. We don't want this king to reign over us. Nobody asked for a vote. There are either those that submit to his reign or those who regret not submitting to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not campaigning for popularity. Now, our understanding is more more of a democracy or a republic, but in the Near East where this text is written, they would understand that if there is significant resistance or a rebel presence, that king will not negotiate, but he will eliminate that rebel presence. And we see, we see Jesus Christ coming back after the, the, the world has been filled with the proclamation and gone throughout the world. We see Jesus coming back in Second Thessalonians. And I just want to just mention a couple of texts to you this morning. Um, somebody's going to say, well, that sounds so negative or it, it, you're going to scare people away. Jesus closed this parable with these words. That's what he said. He's the one that said this. 
Is it uncomfortable? Yes. And maybe it's supposed to be. Someone has said, well, you should end every sermon on a positive note. Jesus didn't end this parable on a positive note. He just didn't. He didn't sugarcoat it. And, and so, and so here, here's 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 to 10. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. Now, you say that's terrible and I, I, I don't want to be a part of a church that deals with negative things like that. You can look at verse 27 of our text this morning, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Again, that is a parable, but I think we see enough evidence in scripture to say that, that you're in a heap of trouble if you don't trust Christ. It's going to be bad if you don't trust Christ. But what you also hear me standing up here today pleading with you is to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this opportunity to believe. Today is the day of salvation. Believe right now while there is time. So this kingdom is not a democracy. And for those who reject this kingdom, eternal ruin awaits you. I'll just read what I've written in my notes. This is negative to many. It is undesirable. It should be cloaked in softened verbiage. We shouldn't scare people. This is repulsive and unacceptable. God is a God of love, not judgment. If you will believe the gospel, you will know Jesus Christ as a God of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is God's love for you right now that has me standing here right now proclaiming to you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his love. The text of Scripture tells us that the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus has come that we might have life. And he laid down his life for you and for me that we might have life. And he has come to set us free. And the only way to be set free and to have life abundantly is to trust Jesus Christ, to surrender to Jesus Christ. So let me blame Jesus this morning. It is impossible to describe final judgment in a pleasant and attractive way. It is just impossible. It is intended to incite fear. It is intended to offend. And it is intended to capture our attention. I would say, as we look at the text, there's this one guy that got a minor that didn't do anything with it. And I would say this in response to that. Beware of soft opposition to the king in his, in, his, in his kingdom. Subtle opposition to the king in his kingdom. Dale Ralph Davis said, Not all who oppose the king are blatant enemies, but they might be false servants. They despise the king. Those who said, I didn't do anything with it. I was scared. They despised the king as much as those who were in rebellion. They refused to engage. They refused to navigate life in the currency of the kingdom. And quite frankly, in the church today, this is 
admirable and desirable. But it doesn't leave us in a place where ultimately we hope that we will be. It is not a place where the power of the kingdom and the king are released. Let me, uh, I want to read one final passage and I'm done. And here's what I say, final notes before I make application. We must operate in his kingdom. And listen, we must operate in his kingdom and with his power or we are not in his kingdom. I I say that to, to, um, to indict the contemporary church. When I say contemporary, I don't mean like, Oh, contemporary music, traditional music. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church in 2022. We, we think we need the smartest men. We think we need the wealthiest men. We think we need the most decorated and degreed men to lead the church or to be important in the church. We think we need the, the, the big institutions. How are we going to survive? These institutions are too big to fail. Look at all these institutions are doing. But listen, listen and, and as we look at, as, as we look at, and here's what I want you to see, as we look at how, how the business of the kingdom is done, it's done through people who are using the currency of the kingdom, and the currency of the kingdom is that which Christ puts in us that flows out of us when we just surrender everything to him. And that's a beautiful thing. But, but listen, to, listen to 1 Corinthians 2, because we in our flesh are compelled to be a part of things that are impressive. We in our flesh are compelled to be a part of organizations and institutions that have, that have these trappings of the world that are the bulk of their identity as opposed to relationships, as opposed to love, as opposed to entering into crisis with nothing but Jesus and the gospel. We're attracted to all these things. 1 Corinthians 2, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you. I, 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 did, I, did I not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech? Let me read it again. I've got ink written all over my page. I can't even tell what I'm reading. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. Now, we like lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you hear that? That's what Jesus is saying. I'm here now. No, I'm not. my kingdom's not going to look like Rome. I'm leaving, and while you're here, I'm giving you the currency of the kingdom. And this is what you using this currency is going to look like. So that when you enter into all of the stuff that's happening in the Christlessness around you, you're going to walk in with the power that's not your own, and miracles are going to happen. Do that until I come back. When I set up my kingdom, it is going to be absolutely amazing. But do that until I come back. Conclusion, number one, try to be open to Jesus' correction of your theological traditions, perspectives, and understanding. Don't miss, listen, don't miss what Jesus Christ is doing right in front of your eyes. 
because you think you already have everything figured out. You say, where are you getting that from? Well, these guys are like, hey, Rome's right over the hill. The kingdom's going to be here. And Jesus is like, whoa, you guys completely missed the kingdom. Try to be open to Jesus' correction of your theological traditions, perspectives, and understanding. Don't miss what he's doing right before your eyes because you've got everything figured out. Secondly, don't obsess over the details regarding the return of the king. We got through the, we get through Luke, and in Acts one six to eight, they're like, "All right, when's the kingdom coming?" Jesus is like, "Don't worry about, don't worry about when the kingdom's coming. Don't worry about how the kingdom's coming. Don't worry about any of that. But you're going to receive power after the Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to go be witnesses." This is what he's saying. A power is coming in you. A currency of the kingdom is coming in you that is going to flow out of you, and it's going to multiply. By you just being the embodiment of it and and going where darkness is and going where lifelessness is and going where brokenness is and going where sin is and just go there and proclaim good news. Go there and bring healing. Go there and bring hope. Go there and love people. Go there and walk with people. Go there and hurt with people. Go there and grieve with people. Go there and just sit and keep your mouth shut and let the Spirit work through you. Don't obsess over the details of the return of the king. Where scripture speaks, listen. Where scripture does not speak, try not to speculate. Thirdly, live your life as as a servant who is dependent upon the currency of the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't need manipulators. The kingdom doesn't need all that we bring in our flesh. The kingdom just needs available people who would say, I'm empty. Lord, fill me and flow through me. And finally, if Jesus is not your king and you are not a faithful servant, you are in trouble. If Jesus is not your king and you are not a faithful servant, you are in trouble. And I want to invite you into the kingdom. The king has sent me here to invite you into his kingdom. He's a good king. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is a friend who will take your sin and lavish you with grace. He's a friend that will take all of your pain and use everything that you've ever been through to shape it into something that will let you shine as a masterpiece for him. There's so much more I could say about this king. You say, how can I believe on him? Scripture says, call upon the name of the Lord. Cry out to him. Cry out. Confess your sin to him. Turn to him. Believe in him. Rest in him. Stop believing in yourself and trust him. And then come let us, week by week and day by day and hour by hour, walk with you so that you can experience the joy of having the currency of the kingdom in you and watch it impact the lives of those around you. 